Ever feel stuck in your marriage? Like you just can't move forward until you can get over these thoughts that keep tormenting you, whether it's jealousy or bitterness or anger or hurt, whatever it might be. Well, that's what we're going to talk about in this episode of our To Love, Honor, and Vacuum podcast. This month, we're talking about how to live that big life that God has planned for us. I've been asking you all to picture a huge poinsettia that I saw in Costa Rica, and I've got a picture of it in the blog post for this podcast, um, where it's huge and it's all in bloom. And compare that to the spindly little ones that we get in Canada in December 1st that lose all its leaves by Christmas. And, And a lot of us are settling for that spindly poinsettia in our marriage, because It may have a couple of blooms and it may look kind of pretty, but it's lacking the environment that it needs to thrive. God meant for it to be so much bigger. And I think a lot of us are missing out on what God meant for ourselves and for our marriages. We've already talked about time wasters and we've talked about health. And today I want to talk about our attitudes. Yesterday on the blog, I published a letter um, which really blew me away. It was a reader question that made me really sad. And a lot of my reader questions make me sad because they're difficult um, marriage situations. And I just feel so sorry for the people that are stuck in them. But this one made me sad for a whole different reason. And so I want to read it to you. This woman says, I've been married for nine years to an amazing man. We got married young and each knew that the other felt differently about having kids. He wanted them. I was vehemently against them. We got married anyway. Three years ago, I was fed up with fighting and disappointing my parents who desperately wanted grandchildren. My sibling never married, so I gave in. The day I found out I was pregnant was one of the worst days of my life following the day I gave birth. I hated my child, and I hated my husband for forcing motherhood on me. He had said earlier in our marriage that there was no point in being married unless we were going to have kids, and he felt dutifully responsible as Christians to have kids. Maybe I was wrong to be devastated to hear his opinions on his reasons for marriage, but I was. I did grow to love my baby very much after a few months, and we now have a second, again, out of obligation on my side. But I can't seem to fully recover from my anger towards my husband. Ever since I got pregnant the first time, I feel the only reason my husband loves me is because of the kids. And so every time he says, I love you, I feel resentful. I'm trying to let it all go as it is negatively impacting my view on our marriage intimacy and my view of the kids. I still love them now, but I wish I weren't a mom, but I can't seem to beat this thing. How can I just completely let it go? Now, there's a whole lot of issues in this uh, in this letter writer's question, and a lot of them I did deal with on the blog yesterday. One of the big glaring things I see here is that she's a mom now. And she has to stop saying that I wish my kids weren't here and that I wish I weren't a mom because that is so dangerous to those kids. So I don't want to go into that right now because what I really want to talk about is that last question of how can she stop resenting her husband? There's other issues here about God's purposes for our lives, all of that sort of thing. But what I really want to look at here is how can she stop this stuff from haunting her? It reminds me actually of another reader question that I got that I tackled on the blog a couple of years ago. And this one was a a different situation entirely. It was how can you stop obsessing over your husband's past? And to sum up this reader's question, basically, when they were engaged, she had been a virgin, uh, but he had had much more of a sexual past than she did. And what really bothered her was that he treated sex casually before they got married. And in fact, uh, one day as they were waiting for premarital counseling, he saw a girl walk by that he had once dated. And he told his then fiance, I don't know if this is the right time to say anything, but I dated that girl. Not serious, only three dates. And then she asked if he had had sex with her. And he, he said that he had and she was devastated. You know, and in both cases, here are these women who are just um, 
completely consumed with these thoughts about how could her husband do this? You know, my husband doesn't really love me because he says that he only wanted to get married because of the kids, which actually is not what the husband said, but that's what the woman is telling herself. This other woman is saying, how can my husband really see sex as a proper lovely thing if he had casual sex? And so let me tell you what I told that woman about how to stop obsessing over your husband's past. This woman says in her letter that she does pray about this. She's tried to give it to God and she's tried to hand over to God all of her jealousy about her husband's past. And that's great. But God doesn't only ask us to pray. He also gives us something specific to do. Like when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, one of the things that we're supposed to ask for is lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So God is the one who's supposed to deliver us. Yes. But how does he do that? For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory. So the way that we're delivered from evil is that God's power comes to work in us. And what is this power that Jesus refers to in the Lord's Prayer? I think it's the Holy Spirit living inside of us and transforming us. But here's the thing, okay? The Holy Spirit does not transform you passively. The Holy Spirit transforms you as you take action. And the way that we take action is that through our will, we hand over more and more control of our life to God. Here's a verse um, from that Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. I quote this all the time. It was really one of the main verses that I talked about in my book, Nine Thoughts That Can Change Your Marriage. But Paul writes, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Overcoming jealousy involves taking every thought captive. Overcoming bitterness involves taking every thought captive. Overcoming this idea that your husband only loves you because you gave him children involves taking every thought captive. It's an active thing. Thoughts may enter your head and they may be unbidden. You may remember he slept with someone else that when he only went on three dates with her. Or you may remember, um, you know, my husband said that children were an important part of marriage and why would you get married without them? But what you do with that thought is entirely your choice. And simply praying, God, please help me to let this go is not enough. You have to actually decide to let this go. In fact, sometimes when we keep praying about it so much, Lord, please take this bitterness away from me, or please take this jealousy away from me, we're actually feeding those things because we keep thinking about them. If you're going to decide to let it go, it means taking the thought captive and then choosing to not think about it anymore. And this is what it looks like. So when the thought enters your head, you demolish that pretension that is setting yourself, setting itself up against your marriage and you replace it with something else. So if you think to yourself, he slept with someone he only went on three dates with, then you say, yes, my husband does have a past, but my husband turned from that past. He married me and I made a vow to him knowing his past. So I will choose not to think of it, but to concentrate instead on how much he loves me today. And then I would suggest saying a prayer of gratitude for something amazing that your husband has done lately. Turn your thoughts into something else. Because when you consciously think about something else, you'll find that your attitudes and your feelings change. So when you pray about the stuff, it's not to dwell on the things that are bothering you, okay? It's to ask the Lord to bring to your mind the other wonderful things that your husband does now. See, there is no magic formula to getting over bitterness or jealousy, except 
for actively deciding to reject these things. God is not just going to wave a wand over you while you obsess over your husband's past choices. You must first walk in obedience to God's direction. Take every thought captive and choose to change your thoughts. And as you change your thoughts, you're going to end up changing your feelings as well. That's how change works. My mother loves the saying, whatever you focus on expands. And that is so true. If you are always focusing on how your life did not turn out the way you wanted it to, like our letter writer who doesn't want to be a mom, that is what she's going to feel. But if she instead start replacing those thoughts with prayers of gratitude, things are going to be different. So what I would say to that woman who's thinking, I wish I weren't a mom, (laughs) I would say you need to start feeling some gratitude and even be proactive about it. Every morning as you wake up, thank God for three things about your life and try to make them different every day, okay? And every night when you go to bed, thank God for three things that happened to you today. There's a reason that God says in everything, give thanks, As we give thanks, we change the thought processes in our brain. So what are you feeding? If you're feeding resentment and bitterness, that's going to grow. But if you're feeding gratitude, then that is going to grow. We need to start feeding the right things. I'm not saying the solution, you know, to getting over your husband's porn use is to just always feel grateful for him, especially if he is still using porn. I'm not saying the solution to getting over your husband's adultery is just to welcome him back into the home and to start feeling grateful for everything if he hasn't rebuilt trust. Those are totally different scenarios. We're not talking today about ongoing problems, which do need to be addressed. We're instead talking about stuff where things were done in the past. There's no reconciliation that needs to take place. And the ball really in her court now. A lot of the reasons that our lives are much smaller than they should be and that we're not able to walk forward in gratitude and to live those big lives is because we are feeding really negative thoughts. That's really what Nine Thoughts That Can Change Your Marriage was all about. You know, I set up the book so that I looked at four things where we can address our own thought patterns before we start addressing what our husbands are doing wrong. And there are three chapters in there on how to work out conflict, how to uh, approach our spouses when they seriously are going off base, and then two chapters on how not to drift. So those are all very important things. But I started with us. I said, okay, we got to get our thought patterns right. One of the cool things that I shared in the book was a piece of research from the John Gottman Institute about the two things that go into making a successful marriage. And one of them is that couples look for ways to connect. So when when her husband starts a conversation, when he says something, you continue that conversation, you don't shut it down. But the other one, and this is what I really want to stress, is that you scan for successes. Okay, contempt is the number one thing that drives couples apart. Contempt judges and leaves people in the dust. If you are always looking for the things that your spouse is doing wrong, you're going to see them. But if instead you're scanning for the things that your spouse is doing right and deliberately scanning for those things, you're going to notice them more often. And when you notice them more often, you're going to start to feel better about your spouse. So it's not just that your spouse is doing good things. It's that you are deliberately scanning for successes and you're calling them out. So for instance, if you if you have more of the contempt mindset, you may say that, okay, yeah, sure, my husband may have said that one thing nicely, but it doesn't count because he never remembers my birthday. Yeah, sure, he may have put the kids in bed tonight so that I can have some time to myself, but that doesn't count because he worked last Saturday and left me with the kids all day and he's always doing that. 
So you, no matter what he does, you frame yourself as the martyr and him as the bad one, and you don't give him credit for things. And that means he can never dig himself out of the hole he's in. You can turn this around, and this is what John Gottman found, by thanking him every chance you get for something nice that he does, even when you don't think that he deserves it. Okay, don't think, well, if I thank him for this, I'll think he's off the hook. No, that's not it. Just do it. Because when you have to thank him, you have to look for things that he does that are good. And when you look for them, you really do see them. John Gottman said this, marriage masters are scanning the social environment for things they can appreciate and say thank you for. Marriage disasters are scanning the social environment for partners' mistakes. So it all comes down to what you're choosing to focus on. Again, I am not talking here about situations where your husband is being abusive or he's doing something really wrong. And in Nine Thoughts That Can Change Your Marriage, I do talk about how to address those serious issues in our lives. But what I do see is that a lot of us are holding ourselves back in marriage because of our attitudes. These things are in our heads and we just can't get rid of them. Let me end this by telling you one personal story. When I was 21 years old, I was engaged and we were supposed to be married on August 17th. My birthday is May 25th. And on May 25th, my then fiance sat down with me and told me that he didn't think he could go through with the wedding. And that sent me through a huge tailspin. Now, in retrospect, I think it was actually an important thing for me to go through because over that summer, I made some important realizations about what my life was based on. And I had to realize that only God could bring me true happiness. I had been trying to find other people to make me happy and to make me feel loved. And ultimately, only God could love me perfectly. I needed to know that. And I needed to know that God was enough. Now that even if other people didn't love me, I was going to be okay because I was resting in God. It was a terrible summer, but those were two important lessons to learn. And I am glad that I learned them. But I'm also glad that that guy came to his senses and he did come back and Keith and I did get married. It was just in December of that year instead of August of that year. But I had a very, very hard time letting go of the fact that my husband had broken up with me and had broken my heart. Even though I was totally in love with him, even though he was in love with me and he had chosen me, and even though he was trying every day to show me that he loved me, whenever little things would go wrong in the marriage, that would come back up. Oh, he broke up with you. He's never going to love you perfectly. And these thoughts would haunt me. And even until relatively recently, I wrote about this a lot in Nine Thoughts, um, that this was one of the things that would keep cropping up whenever we went through a bad period of our marriage, I would be reminded, oh, he's the one who broke your heart. And eventually I had to make the decision that I was not going to focus on that anymore. It wasn't so much about forgiveness <laughs> because I had forgiven him. It, I wasn't mad at him anymore, but it was just this prevailing disappointment that was over my life. Like I will never be fully loved by my husband because of something that happened. I'm never going to experience that picture perfect marriage that everybody always wants. And I had to choose to let go of that fairy tale. I had to choose when those thoughts started coming into my head to say, no, I am not going to focus on the past. I'm going to focus on who Keith is today and on how much he loves me and what an amazing husband he is for me. And when I started to do that, all of those thoughts stopped, but it took deliberately doing it. So let me just ask you, are you stuck? Whether it's with bitterness or memories that keep popping up, things that your husband did in the past that he can't make better today because there's no way he can take them back. 
If there are things that are totally in the past, there is no magic formula that can get rid of those thoughts. There's nothing magical you can do. There's even nothing that you can pray except for this. You choose to take every thought captive. You choose to participate in what God wants to do in your life by making it an act of the will. So just try it. When those thoughts come into your head, take them captive and replace them with gratitude. And I really think that that is the key to our lives getting a lot bigger and our marriage is getting a lot bigger and resentment getting a lot smaller. Our churches are filled with Christian patty answers about marriage. Something wrong? Pray about it. Is he watching porn? Have more sex. Is he not leading? Submit more. Pat answers sometimes work, but not always. And God doesn't work in pat answers. He works in the messiness of life. Nine Thoughts That Can Change Your Marriage is my book where I get a little messy. Join me in my journey away from pat answers and towards healthy, authentic marriages. Nine Thoughts That Can Change Your Marriage. Because your marriage should be great. Hi, my name is Rebecca Lindenbach, and welcome to Millennial Marriage, the part of the podcast where we talk about millennials and marriage. Yes, and you're my daughter. Yes, and I'm (laughs) Sheila's daughter. And I'm the daughter who is a millennial. The other daughter is one year off, but... Yes, I'm one of the youngest millennials out there. Yeah. Woo. Woo. And, and, and we want to make sure that, because so many of our listeners are millennial, that we reflect what's actually going on in culture. So I like in this segment, just talk about some of the stuff that's going on and that's in the news about people your age. Exactly. So one of the things that's been posted recently is an article in USA Today about why so many young people are leaving the church or are having long periods of time where they don't go to church at all. Yeah. And I find like often um, when you talk about this, people my age talk down to millennials a lot. Like we say, oh, you're so shallow and everything like that. Exactly. I actually saw a tweet. This is why we're talking about it. I actually saw a tweet a couple, um, I think a week or so ago, which was linked to this article and said that the problem is that millennials come to church in order to be served. And that's the problem. And it's one of those other, it's like, oh, millennials are entitled kind of perspectives, especially about church. And I really didn't agree with that at all. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that millennials need to be served any more than any other people do necessarily. I think it's also a function of age. I mean, at that age, I kind of needed help too. So That's exactly the point. The article is talking about between the ages of 18 and 22, which, to be completely honest, are some of the most difficult years that you face. I mean, if you're not going to get served by the church at any... Like, that yeah. seems a little bit... Even if people were just going to church to be served, isn't that a pretty good time of life to ask for a little bit of help? I know. I always told you guys growing up that, listen, 18 to 22 are the worst years of your life. Like, they are the most difficult because you don't know what's going to happen in the future. You're in the middle of the hardest parts of your education. There's just so much uncertainty. It is a really difficult time. And on top of that, you're just dealing with all these really big things for the first time. But beyond that, I don't even think that young people actually do go to church to be served. This, uh, my disagreement was actually even beyond that. And here's what I said. I said, I don't actually agree that the problem is that young people are going to church in order to be served. I think it's that we're not getting what we really need. Community. Church is set up in a way that makes it really hard to actually get to know anyone. In the years the current model of the church was set up, people still knew their neighbors. Churches were local establishments where everywhere everyone you went to church with lived near you. Now, we don't have community in our current culture. We're isolated from each other. And so we go to church because we know something is missing, but all we get is teaching, some songs, and then everybody leaves. Frankly, we can get that on YouTube these days. What we really need is to be part of the body of Christ. 
What I think needs to happen is a new church model that works with the current social climate, one where people can just go and be with God together, where there's less having people sit quietly in pews beside each other but still isolated since they can't talk or interact. I don't think we have an entitlement problem as much as a loneliness problem. So while some, yes, definitely have that attitude, I think the attitude often comes about because the core needs are simply not being met, the need to connect. And then I said, you know who serves in the church? People who feel it's their family, who feel connected, who feel invested in the people in the church. Otherwise, the serving is out of obligation. If we focus more on human connection, the needs will be filled. But if we, but we can't do it the other way around. Yeah, and I, I absolutely, totally agree with that. I think I, I actually wrote an article um, in Canada's largest evangelical magazine a couple of years ago on why I think the current model of church needs to change. Because speaking just at, for me, I'm not even a millennial, but I feel this need is that what I really need is community. I don't need teaching. I can get that in books. I can get that in podcasts. What I really need is to feel like I belong and that there are people who care about me. And I think it's so funny how after church services, we're all like little butterflies flying from person to person trying to get all these conversations in before you have to leave. And it's... it. It seems like we should be doing a better job at church of just letting people talk. Well, especially (laughs) since in community, that's where you actually get accountability too, right? Like you can listen to all the sermons you want, but unless you actually know people, no one's going to call you out if you're doing something bad. Yeah. And so I I totally agree with you. That's a big issue. But let's just take a look at what the USA Today um, survey said as well about why people don't go to church. Of course. Um, Nearly all of them cited life changes. And I have a big thing to say about this one. Okay. Like when you move to college or work experiences and then you stop attending, you know, what I did every single kid who left our small town to go to university um, I did some research and I found out what the Christian groups on campus were and I made them hook up before they even left Belleville like I sent them here's the Facebook group for InterVarsity here's the Facebook group for Power to Change here's the Facebook group for Navigators you know (laughs) because I think that's a big problem is that kids leave their home church and then they don't make an effort to get involved in churches elsewhere because they're just so busy and so the more that we as parents and concerned people can get kids hooked up right away the better. Absolutely. And especially since they're also going through a lot of other changes. And so if it becomes this really overwhelming thing, they don't know the city or maybe they're not comfortable with public transit yet and they aren't sure where they're going and they don't, they know if they go to the church, they don't know if anyone's going to talk to them. If you can kind of get rid of some of that by just connecting them ahead of time, absolutely, it really can make a big difference. I mean, you've had quite a few people who are from my youth group who went to these groups and then later told you, like, yeah, I went because you sent me those links. Yeah. <laughs> and yep. the problem is, this is, this is again, part of the problem that I see a lot, is the churches are quick to say, look at what these young people are doing wrong, but what did the churches do to help the young people do anything right? Yes, absolutely. You know, and that kind of leads into the other points that this survey brings out, which said that 73% said that church or pastor-related reasons led them to leave. A lot of them said that the church members seemed judgmental or hypocritical, and others f- said they just didn't feel connected. Mm-hmm. And to be completely honest, in millennial generation, I mean, people are so focused on making sure that people feel heard, making sure that you actually see the real person and not just, you know, the outward part of who they are. Mm-hmm. And when you're in a church that seems to focus more on, you know, the things that don't seem to be as relevant in day-to-day life, if I'm going to be completely honest, but then they don't actually stop to talk to, you know, the homeless person on their way back home from work, or they don't really welcome people who seem a bit different, that can be really difficult for young people. Yeah, you know what's I, what I find um, is one of the biggest generational changes is when I was your age, everybody was into these um these new worship models right like Mm -hmm. like with the big praise bands and it was going to be this big production and we were just starting to get 
you know, the video screens and that was cutting edge and that was awesome. And I've read a number of articles about millennials, how they're actually going back to the Anglican church yeah, <laughs> and, and the liturgy, like they want some of that awe, yep. like you get, you get video and, and all that hype everywhere. Exactly. What you really want is some awe and something that's really meaningful. I'm not saying everybody has to be Anglican, okay? <laughs> <laughs> that's not, that's not my point. I'm just saying I think that we're misjudging what millennials need. I, th- I think that we, that we believe that they just need a big show, but that's not it at all. Millennials need deep meaning and they aren't going to get that in a church, which is really hyped up. And I think that when you're looking at any generation, You just got to look at what their daily life looks like and then give them what their daily life is missing, right? Like with your generation, you didn't have YouTube and podcasts and TED Talks (laughs) and like infinite amounts of that wow craziness. You didn't have the same kinds of um, entertainment culture that there is today, Yeah, right? And so going to church where it was this big show actually would probably be, you know, meeting some of the, the needs and desires of the people who are in the congregation. Whereas now it's just like, we're so overwhelmed all the time. All we want is to sit and have coffee with people we care about and who care about us. Yeah. That's literally all we want. And, and maybe you know? something that's more contemplative, I think too. And then yeah. of course there was, we do need to mention this, even though we're Canadian. Okay. So this isn't as much of an issue up here for us in the great white North, but uh, again, 70% of people mentioned religious, um, ethical or political beliefs for dropping out. And, you know, I know in the United States, a lot of that is related to um, how politics is fused with religion. Mm-hmm. Not a good move. No, really to be honest. Because I mean, let's be honest. Even if you believe that Jesus is behind your particular political party, do you really think that saying that is worth alienating the other half of the country? Yeah. And that's why I don't talk about politics on the blog. You know, I used to back yeah. in 2008, 2010. I, I actually did a lot of politics on the blog and I've totally stopped because even though I have extremely strong political beliefs <laughs> and I'm pretty sure they're not what everybody thinks they yeah. are. <laughs> you know, but, um, that's not my purpose. Exactly. You know, my purpose is marriage and I am open to Democrats and Republicans and everything in between. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't. Or Canadians, liberals and conservatives and NDP. But I think that 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 epitomizes the problem that millennials are finding in the church is that I think for a lot of millennials, church feels more like a culture battle than it does a community. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the big problem is how can we figure out how we can put aside all of the cultural differences that are found in today's society, whether or not you agree with this political party, whether or not you agree with this kind, whether you believe that, you know, I mean, the big one that's attached to millennials is veganism, for instance, right? Like, how do you have, you know, if you have people who are honestly believe that, you know, these kinds of things are wrong, how do we make it not a religious thing all the time? And how do we mm-hmm. learn how to just meet with Jesus together and bring each other towards Jesus and leave all of this stuff that really is peripheral stuff behind? Because that's become the fundamental um, cornerstone of many churches. And I think that's what's driving mm-hmm. young people away. Okay, so we've talked about you know, what we've basically done right now is told people in my generation how they need to be good to millennials. But I do want to talk to millennials specifically now. And, and what I want to say to you guys is don't give up. Yes. Like, do not give up trying to find a good church. If you grew up in like a mega church movement, and you just do not relate to that at all, and you've been really turned off, that's okay. Find some cute little church in your area with a bunch of old people who just want to talk and share life wisdom with you. And bring potlucks. And bring potlucks, exactly. (laughs) 
<laughs> you yeah. know, just try a different kind of church. Honestly, one of millennials' favorite quotes you see on Twitter and Facebook all the time is be the change you want to see in the world. So be the change you want to see in the church. Exactly. Yep. And the church isn't going to change without people being the change makers. Yeah. And so do not give up. You need Jesus and you need community. And if you aren't finding it in the churches that you're used to, then look to other churches that still preach the gospel, but that do church differently because they are out there. And if they're not there, you work hard to make them because our culture and our communities still really need Jesus. Like this podcast? Then you'd love the blog. Join us at tolovehonorandvacuum.com where Sheila blogs every weekday about marriage, faith, and of course, sex. At the To Love, Honor, and Vacuum community, we deal with the messiness of life. We don't traffic in pat answers. Join us for thought-provoking posts, discussion starters, and great challenges to make your marriage and your love life strong. Sometimes I get a reader question and I just read it and go, oh, honey. And that's what this one is. So here, let me read you what this woman wrote to me. I'm in my mid-20s with a four-year-old child and both my husband and I work full-time. I have an issue with enjoying sex, and that led to him having an affair a few months ago, which was so devastating. I decided to stay and fight for my marriage. So far, I've been reading a lot about thriving marriages and sex, as I do not want to be the reason for him straying once again. I want to love him and to feel that, because for a long time, I have not been feeling connected to him. How do you bounce back into a marriage, though, after your spouse has cheated on you? Even if you've forgiven him, but still deep inside, trust issues are haunting you as much, and you want to learn to love him again. Okay. First of all, he did not have an affair because you had issues with enjoying sex. And if you keep having issues with enjoying sex, that will not be the reason for him straying once again. Okay, if he strays, it's because he is choosing to do something wrong, right? If you have a trouble enjoying sex, that does not cause him to have an affair. He had an affair because he chose to. Now, he could have been in a really difficult marriage situation, and certainly we can put our spouses in positions where they might be more susceptible to things, but don't think that you caused it. That kind of wording just makes me go, oh, because it's not your fault, all right? You may have contributed to issues in your marriage, but the choice to have an affair is his and his alone. And he messed around on you. Instead of dealing with the issue in your marriage properly, he decided to go outside the marriage. That is wrong. He could have sat you down and said something like, you know, hon, I feel like God meant so much more for us. And I can see that you're not enjoying sex. What can I do to help you enjoy it? Like, can we talk about what we can do to totally change our marriage? Because I want you to live a passionate life. I want you to experience all that God has for you. Maybe he tried that and you didn't listen. I don't know. But I'm just saying it's not your fault. There's other things he could have done to deal with this. Okay. Even if it was just simply to say to you, we need to go see a counselor because I can't live like this. But he didn't do that. He had an affair and that was wrong. I think it's wonderful that you're trying to rebuild, especially because you have a child. And I can tell you that I have known so many marriages that have rebuilt after an affair. An affair does not necessarily mean that your marriage is over. It really doesn't. But our attitudes toward that affair are really important. He has to understand that he's the one who caused this. And the fact that she is saying... The fact that I didn't enjoy sex caused him to have an affair. I wonder if those are the words that he's saying to her. Or maybe even the words that some counselors are saying to her. And if so, please get a new counselor. Okay, you did not lead to him having an affair. And he needs to own up to it. 
He needs to own his part of that because you're not going to be able to trust him again until he owns his part. You need to feel that he is safe. And if you feel that he's only safe as long as I am being perfect, then that's not going to do it. And so maybe one of the reasons you can't rebuild trust is that he isn't owning what he did. Trust isn't rebuilt overnight. And it's okay to say, I am still really sensitive in this area and I want us to grow together, but I need some boundaries on what that's going to look like. She says that she hasn't felt emotionally connected to him for a while. And I would say that's a really good place to start. Rather than worrying about sex, let's just, let's put sex on the back burner for a minute and let's deal with that emotional connection. Because if you feel like he is a safe place, which is really only possible when there is an emotional connection, it's far more likely you're going to be able to enjoy sex. So start some new hobbies together. Make sure that every day you share your high low of the day so that you know emotionally what's going on in each other's lives. Take a few minutes uh, before you have dinner and just share, okay, this was the best part of my day or and this was the time that I felt the most frustrated. Really know where your husband is emotionally and let, make sure that he knows where you are emotionally. Um, spend some fun time doing hobbies. I've got some conversation starters that I'll put up on the blog and, um, and a list of, of hobbies that you can do as a couple. Those are great things to start. Play some board games. Just do some stuff together and build that emotional connection. And then you can work on the sex because for women, especially sex is not going to work if you don't feel safe and feeling safe involves knowing that he takes responsibility for his actions and knowing that he is taking steps so that you feel like you're emotionally cared for and emotionally heard. It does sound like you've got issues with enjoying sex, you know, and if, and if that was the only thing, my advice would be different. It's just that when there's an affair involved, you do need to rebuild trust. Now, it could be that you've never enjoyed sex because he's never taken time to figure out what you like and you've never taken that time either. And so once that trust is rebuilt, I'd really encourage you to try 31 Days to Great Sex. It's such a fun exercise that I put together. It doesn't take long. You just read two to four pages together each night and do what it says and it builds on itself. And there's a lot of exercises in that which will help you build trust again, which will help you build emotional connection, help you feel safe to flirt and to be affectionate. And of course, will help you figure out what feels good because many of us women just don't know. Um, and then it'll also address libido issues. You know, I really think a lot of the times we women don't enjoy sex because men don't always understand what goes into us enjoying sex. Sex should take longer than five minutes. We need a lot of foreplay. And 31 Days to Great Sex does show you and teach you both that foreplay is really important. So yes, by all means, work on enjoying sex. But I would just say it's far more important at this early stage to make sure that he is owning and taking the responsibility for what he did and that you're working on building that emotional connection first because you need to feel safe. And it's okay to say that. It's okay to say, I need to feel safe first. And now it's time to listen to some great thoughts from some of you. On the Till of Honor and Vacuum podcast, I'd like to highlight a comment or two that I've had either on the blog or across social media this week, and then just talk about it. And here's a really interesting one from a woman named Yulia. She was writing uh, in response to an article that I wrote about emotional abuse, where I'm talking about how 
Uh, there are marriages where when you enact boundaries, the marriage can actually get better. Now, that doesn't apply if you're married to a narcissist or someone who's physically abusive. Um, but sometimes there are things that you can do. And here's a really great point that she made that I think needs to get better understood. She says, the hardest thing about abusive relationships are the cycles of abuse versus affection. Constant severe abuse is often a lot easier to walk away from, as it is obvious and there is no reward to pull you back. Emotional manipulation or abuse is far worse as you are trained to put up with more due to the carrot stick behavior. Just when you start to gather up the courage to leave, the abuser will switch into nice mode and draw you back in again. Then the relationship will be all roses for a while and you think everything is all right, you let your guard down, you start planning for the future, and then one day the abuse restarts and you feel completely thrown. And the constant swings in emotion destroy your self-esteem and leave you unable to accurately judge whether the abuse is really that bad, since they can be so lovely at other times. It's exhausting, and it gets harder and harder to find the energy to stand up to the bad times. You eventually just give up and assume this is how your life will be forever. The cycles of abuse affection become your new normal as you forget what a real, normal, healthy relationship is like. And I just want to say she is so absolutely right. And this is really common, this abuse cycle. Uh, they can even call it love bombing. That's another um, phrase that they have. And what, what happens is when the abuse gets bad enough and the abuse victim starts to say, okay, I can't handle this anymore, then the abuser knows they have to bring that person back in. And so, yeah, they're really affectionate. They're really loving. They do all these nice things and they apologize. And so we think, oh my gosh, he's changed. And interestingly, this is this is a point that I made too um, in my critique of love and respect because Emerson Egrich gave a story about this physically and emotionally abusive husband who repented and then he was allowed back in the house. Okay, repentance is not enough. That doesn't count because this is a constant cycle, all right? It's the same as that love bombing. Oh, I'm so sorry. No, what you need is not affection from your abuser. What you need is to see that they accept responsibility for what they did, that they can tell you what they did and why it was wrong and how they hurt you, that they are taking concrete steps to make sure that, that will not happen again. And those concrete steps should include going to counseling, telling those closest to you that they are the ones who messed up and that they are the ones who are abusive and that it is not your fault. It should include not blaming you or making you get back together again, but instead living out a consistent life where you show that you truly are sorry. Because it's not enough to say you're sorry. It's not enough to repent because lots of people can say the words and not mean them. What you need is for that person to rebuild trust. So I just want to encourage you, you know, if you're in an emotionally abusive relationship or if you know anyone who's in one, don't pressure yourself or don't pressure them to go back to the guy or the woman, because women can be abusive as well, just because they say they're sorry or just because they're all of a sudden really affectionate. Like Yulia said, this is a constant cycle and it's very, very common. It's not enough to say you're sorry. It's not enough to be affectionate. What you need is to see that consistent change. And this is true um, in cases of porn use as well. Or it's true in, in cases of affairs. Whenever you're rebuilding trust, it's not about just saying the words, I'm sorry, or it's not enough just being affectionate. They have to take steps to show that they take responsibility for what happened, that they're not going to blame you to other people, and that they are going to live a trustworthy life. So thank you for that comment. I thought it was awesome and a really good point to drive home. Thanks for joining me on the To Love, Honor, and Vacuum podcast. This is me, Sheila Ray Gregoire, signing off for now. Until we meet again next week on the podcast, remember you can find me at tolovehonorandvacuum.com. And this week, keep in mind, what thoughts are you feeding? 
Let's be the good ones so that marriage doesn't feel like a to-do list, but instead feels like an exciting adventure.